This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and before we proceed any further, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to all who donated in support of Talking Animals during WMNF's Spring Fun Drive, which just concluded earlier this morning. I greatly appreciate all the generous pledges before and during last Wednesday's show. By the end of that show, we did fall just short of our assigned fundraising goal, but a few days later, Talking Animals had reached its goal, so thank you very, very much, one and all. Still, WNF itself was inching towards the overall station goal, so if you didn't have a chance to donate last week or in this last week or so, or would like to donate again, please visit WNF.org and click on Donate Now. And along those lines, we'd like to thank someone who pledged earlier in the public affairs block today, Charles, who uh, made a generous donation to get two, count them, two pair of travel heat wave tickets, so... He's going to have a great time, and we're uh, well served by his uh, generous donation. So thank you, Charles. My guest this week is Temple Grandin, sometimes referred to as the world's most famous autistic person. But really, there are several other ways to describe her, including expert on animal behavior, prolific author, longtime professor of animal science at Colorado State University, fervent activist for autistic people, and tireless lecturer. As an alternative to one of those lectures, I interviewed Temple Grandin two weeks ago on stage at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. We covered a wide array of topics from the vital importance of immediate intervention for a child diagnosed on the spectrum to the lifelong kinship she's felt with animals to the loose bolts in the United 737th airplane and how she thinks, by the way, an autistic person should be given the job of fastening those bolts, the Netflix series Love on the Spectrum, and more. Yes? There's a preponderance of autism talk in this conversation that wasn't specifically designed for talking animals, but I felt it was worth sharing on the show. So we'll hear a portion of that discussion in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WNF. Meanwhile, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Tasha Cohen-Glenn of Achieva Credit Union, which in partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay, <coughs> excuse me, will be collecting pet food at all of their branches in Pinellas, Hillsborough, and Pasco counties starting this Friday, March 1st, and running through March 13th. Collected pet food will be distributed to pet owners in need. This Pets Pause for a Purpose campaign is in honor of National Puppy Day, which falls later in March. There are more details and events involved, and we'll hear about those. Natasha Cohen-Glenn joins us in a bit later here on Talking Animals. Right now, though, let's hear a portion of my recent conversation with Temple Brandon, recorded February 12th at the Paramount Theater in Austin. Here's the first part of my conversation with Temple Brandon on Talking Animals on WMF. Good evening, Dr. Brandon. Oh, it's great to be here. I think you came in long travel day from your uh, Colorado home today, right? Yeah, I did. I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, went down to Denver Airport and flew here. Well, we're glad to have you, for sure. Thanks for coming. Let's just 
let's just talk a little bit about the format of what's going to happen for this evening. So we're going to talk, Dr. Grant and I, for about an hour or so. And then we're going to follow that with 15 minutes of uh, Q&A. And we have microphones that we'll set up for that when that part of the evening comes along. Plus, I've gotten some questions submitted through the website and through other means for Dr. Grant. And I'm going to try to weave some of those in as well. So that's kind of what's in store. And um, so let's jump in. So, Dr. Grant, I'd like to start by presenting two scenarios that are hypothetical, really, but rooted in real situations, probably familiar to all kinds of people, including many in this theater. Let's say that my wife and I have a three-year-old son. We've known for some time that things aren't quite right with the way he behaves and communicates or doesn't communicate. We've had a few appointments with a doctor who, in a session yesterday, told us the results suggest that our child is on the spectrum. What should be our first steps? Well, you need to be getting him into really good early therapy. Um, I had no speech until age four, but I was very lucky to get into a very good speech therapy program by age two and a half. The worst thing you can do with a little kid who's not talking is to do nothing. You need to get into therapy now. Now, if you're in a situation where you can't get the therapy, they're gonna make you wait two years for diagnosis, then you need to get some people to help you interact with this child. And what you wanna emphasize is learning how to take turns at games. So they learn how to wait. Also, speech, slow down when you talk to the, to the kid because when you talk too fast, it sounds like gibberish to me. And then start teaching the kids skills. Things like, you know, putting their shirt on, uh, using utensils to eat with. Uh, you get to start working with these kids right now. You've got three-year-olds that are not talking. And I noticed in all kind of your writings over the years and books and articles and uh, conversations like this one's and talks that you've given, that taking turns is paramount, so to speak. It's really important. And, um, so why is that so important? The reason that's important is to teach the kid to inhibit a response. These kids tend to be very impulsive. So you, talk, you teach them how to take turns at a board game that helps later on. Okay, I was at the airport today. They had some very long lines. Well, you have to wait in that line. You have to wait your turn. Uh, you can't be pushing and shoving in line. And so does that have to do with kind of how otherwise there would be impulse control? Well, it, uh, helps, uh, it helps on turn taking to control impulse control. Right. That's why it was so important. And my teacher put a lot of emphasis on that. And then when I got a little older, it was board games, card games. I remember playing Parcheesi and I grabbed the little cup the dice and it shook it and mother says well you have to wait for your sister to take her turn <laughs> yeah so so taking turns was still a thing to learn at the, uh, at the temple well because it teaches the child that sometimes you have to wait yeah it's really an important thing but it sounds like you didn't really want to in that game of Parcheesi well I didn't I didn't yeah. but you yeah. see that's what You've got to learn. You got You've to got to learn to wait and take your turn. So when you're talking about this kind of therapy and learning to take turns, and I mean, once the diagnosis that I introduced in my hypothetical there, is there a window that, that starts to close if you don't move swiftly? Well, it's always better to do early, start just as early as possible. But some kids will start to talk on their own. Then you also have the type of autism where there's no speech delay. When I was out working on building equipment, I had very skilled trades, very high-end skilled trades people working with me. They were definitely autistic. They were designing and inventing mechanical equipment. They owned their own shops, and they were definitely on the autism spectrum. These are probably the ones where there was no speech delay. 
they're just kind of socially awkward. <laughs> and that's the thing. There's so much variability in people that are on the spectrum, right? So, because I think one of the things you've said, I think this is in your... I've been trying to keep up with your books, but you're so prolific, it's hard for me to keep up. But one, one of the newest ones is autism and education, the way I see it, right? What parents and teachers need to know. Well, that's aimed at parents of very young children when they first get diagnosed. It's a little yeah. short book, you know, so they, they can read that concisely. Another book I have is Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. I'm a total visual thinker. All of my memories are pictures. And I didn't know that a lot of other people thought verbally until I uh, talked, until I was in my late 30s. And I was shocked that some people don't have pictures in their mind for right. memories. And so you described that in the past as like little video clips or what would now probably be called TikTok uh, clips. Right? Well, my memories are sort of more like those little live phone pictures you take that move a little bit. Right. And... Okay, if I'm thinking about, okay, what I did in the airport, there was a very long line at security, and I thought it was at the end of it, and some lady goes, the end of the line is there. Well, I went there. And the line went way around. And, and as a I'm seeing it right now. <laughs> now, as a visual thinker, one of the things you talked about, and I think this has been in a book or two, is how that was critical to sort of your work and that we talked about at the big introduction of this to the evening of designing and creating structures and processing plants and that you could at one point I think you talked about how you could sort of troubleshoot a design without putting it into practice because you could see it in your head in a certain way that was almost like a computer model that you could recognize. Well, I was doing, you know, I remember one time sitting in a conference room, we were discussing how to build a bunch of conveyors. And this is before there was any of this 3D modeling stuff. And I go, no, you can't do that. You're going to pull the rail out of the ceiling. I could just see it. Or this is not, this is not going to work. And some of the very first work I did with cattle was to get down in the chutes and see what they were seeing. And they'd stop at a shadow. Like you can see how there's reflections on this water bottle. Yeah. Well, you'd have reflections on a puddle. There'd be a piece of shiny metal that would jiggle. Little things that we tend to not notice, the cattle would notice, and it would make them stop and refuse to go through the chute. And people thought it was really strange to do that. But if you're a visual thinker, it was obvious to me to look at what the cattle were seeing. Yeah, and that's... and that. But I think what, what has surprised you over the years is that other people didn't see what you were seeing. No. And didn't see it that way, and I remember... There was some kind of thing where you had designed something and you got in an argument, I think, with uh, an engineer about what your design was. And I think you called them stupid at one point. And well, the uh, thing that I realized, you see, you see, I visualized, I could visualize that what they had designed would not work. Yeah. I've learned now not to call it stupid. Now that, I have, <laughs> now that I have learned about the different kinds of thinking, which I discuss in the visual thinking book, you got object visualizers like me. We're good at things like art, mechanic, building mechanical things, animals, and photography. Then you have your visual spatial mathematicians. They think patterns, patterns, computer programming, music, and then you have word thinkers. And one of the things I learned about word thinkers is they tend to overgeneralize. They might have a big concept like, oh, let's have an inclusive classroom. But they won't give you any ideas of well, how do we actually do it, where I'm going to say, 
All right, we got to get rid of the LED lights that flicker. We need to be giving instructions more in a written checklist format for working memory problems, and we have to get rid of bullying. Okay, that's three things you could do to make a classroom more inclusive for people with autism. You know, that reminds me, I, when I was thinking about our conversation, because um, I know you've had a lot of different ideas about ways to improve school, and uh, how we've commented on some of the things that they've done are minuses, like taking, off, taking away some of the hands-on classes, shop, and uh, related things. So I was curious, if you had the chance to design the curriculum for the Temple Grandin Academy, which I just made up, um, okay. what would be the key hallmarks of that curriculum? I'd be putting all the hands-on classes back in the schools. You know, absolutely, absolutely. You know, woodworking, metalworking, uh, cooking, sewing, theater. Now, when I was a little kid, I didn't care about acting in the play, but I loved making costumes and scenery. When, and those are things that can turn into a career. Uh, and then, now, some schools are starting to put the, uh, so the hands-on classes back in, but then they won't let the autistic kid take shop because they're worried about liability. Well, in my generation, special ed kids owned the shops and <laughs> built the stuff. And I'm very, very concerned about skill loss. Right now, if you want a poultry processing plant, it's 100 shipping containers from Holland. And it goes back to their educational system. Because in ninth grade, you can go university or you can go tech. We have a tendency to kind of stick our nose up at the, at the tech. We also don't make the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine. It's from Holland. And it's based on mathematical research that was done in the U.S., but they're making it in Holland because there's plenty of mechanical devices on it for my kind of mind. Wow. All right. Well, this just kind of reminds me, I think it was about a year ago you wrote a guest essay in the New York Times about society is failing visual thinkers and that hurts us all. This seems to kind of connect with that. Well, the problem is, is I can't do algebra. And I worked with people that had 20 patents on mechanical devices, mainly used in the beef industry, stuff that's still being used. They couldn't do algebra either, and they'd taken shop classes. Now, you have a math kid, then you want him to take the advanced algebra course. But on the other hand, you have your visual thinkers like me, we're just being screened out. We're being totally screened out. I wouldn't be able to graduate from high school in some states. But then if you have a kid that's good at math, let them take calculus, move them ahead. Let the kid excel in the thing that they're good at. And the interesting thing I saw about food processing plants is all of the mechanical devices are made by the, what they call shop people. I call them the clever engineers. And, and then also the drafting person lays out the entire factory. And then the, the university-trained engineer, they do the more mathematical stuff. Boilers, refrigeration, make sure the roof trusses are strong enough. So you see, you need to have both. But where we're losing it is what I call the clever engineers. You'd like to have the lights stay on here. You'd like to have the water stay on. You're going to need us ones that can't do algebra. So the, the whole stumbling block is algebra. Well, I can't. You see, the problem I got with algebra is nothing there for me to visualize. I failed the SAT in math. Though I've designed equipment that half of all the cattle are handled in. I think that's pretty good for somebody that was stupid. <laughs> here, here. I also, I also uh, found that the other people I worked with... They were some of the best people at inventing mechanical devices, 
also couldn't do algebra. So what I'm saying is, instead of having a one-size-fit-all, for my kind of mind, I can skip algebra and maybe do some business math. Because unfortunately, one of the people that was very brilliant building things lost his shop uh, due to taking a loan out and defaulting. Shouldn't have taken a loan out. Uh, That's where some business math might have helped. Yeah. So then you take your kid that's the computer science that's going to make all the math that makes ChatGPT work. Okay, then you're going to need some algebra. So what I'm suggesting is have different pathways because you have a little math kid who's really brilliant math. Don't make him do baby math. If he can do algebra in third grade, fine. Then move right on to calculus. That's what was done with Katherine Johnson, the famous mathematician. She was moved way ahead very quickly in math. That's why she was able to do those calculations by hand for the Mercury Project. And wasn't that part of that New York Times essay, now that you were saying those things about how we're failing visual thinkers, weren't you kind of saying there's too much emphasis on grades and GPA and, and just generally kind of measuring well, students in that you way? you need to do some measuring, uh, but what I, what I want to emphasize is expose kids to lots of different things. Okay, for an algebra book, is a doorstop for me. But for some another, but for another kid, it's a door. You might expose a fourth grader's brilliant math to old-fashioned algebra book, and they're going to take off with it. But the problem is, if you don't expose them to different things, you don't know. I was exposed to musical instruments, so I could never figure out how to play this little flute. But another kid's going to take off with it. So you expose young kids to lots of different stuff, then they're going to gravitate towards the stuff they're really good at. And I believe in building up the area of strength into something that can turn into a good career. So it's, it's offering more opportunities without putting a roadblock like saying you must pass algebra before you go to this stage. Well, I think, it, I think it's a problem. Like in veterinary school, I couldn't go to veterinary school because I couldn't do the prerequisites. Now, I've taken some of the veterinary physiology class. I got an A in that. I'd have no problem with the vet right. school. Um, but I think we need to be thinking about, yes, there's some things you definitely need algebra for, but being a veterinarian is probably not one of them. And I think the reason why they, some people push this so much is the people that are the more mathematical thinkers think you need algebra for logical thinking. That's not how I think. Not how I think. And uh, let's take something like that door that fell off that plane. You know, they found out they didn't put the bolts in it. <laughs> well, two weeks ago, I said, well, you know, they got it out of a tree and it wasn't busted up. The way they were able to tell that the bolts weren't put in there is when you screw up a bolt against a piece of metal, it makes a mark. The marks weren't there. I had thought about that two weeks ago yeah. as the way to figure out they hadn't put the bolts in it. Yeah, that, that's not really algebra related, but that's, right, that's no, problematic. Algebra didn't yeah. do that. But I have to say, one thing I did not like is I didn't yeah. like reading, I'm sitting in the Denver airport, reading my Wall Street Journal, and I read about loose rudder bolts. Yeah. And that the factory had been sold to private equity. Did you cancel your flight? No, I got on the plane because I'm sure they're super safe right now. Right. Because the airlines have expected everything. For sure. That's the first part of my conversation with Temple Grandin when I interviewed her two weeks ago on stage at the Paramount Theater in Austin. In that first part, I introduced the notion of asking her about two hypothetical scenarios. At the outset of the second portion, I uh, circle back and raise the second hypothetical or somewhat hypothetical scenario. So let's return now. My conversation two weeks ago in Austin, Paramount Theater with Temple Grandin here on Talking Animals. 
I mentioned I had two hypotheticals. I've, I've said one of them. Another one is actually for people at a whole different age, and, and some of your talk about engineers and people who you've, you determine at least probably were on the spectrum, even though they didn't know it. There seems to be a lot of people that are adults, 30s, 40s, 50s, who they or their family members or spouses or whatever have determined that they actually might be on the spectrum, which was totally unbeknownst to them. What are your thoughts on that? Is that just a product of greater awareness of of autism? Oh, I have granddads come up to me all the time, and they figure out they're on the spectrum when the kids get diagnosed. Lots and lots of engineers. And autism can come in a visual thinking type like me, a mathematics, an extreme mathematician. Like what the research shows is that the object visualizer like me and the extreme mathematical pattern thinker, they're actually kind of opposite traits. And they can either one of those can be be autistic, but this comes up all the time. And see, the other reason why some people think autism's increased is they've been changing the diagnostic guideline. See, back in the 80s, to get an autism label, the child had to have speech delay. Absolutely had to have it. You know, then in the early 90s, it came out with Asperger's syndrome, which is socially awkward, no speech delay. Then in 2013, they took that out and they just made one big autism spectrum that includes speech delay along with socially awkward with no speech delay. Do you think these changes have been a plus or a minus? Well, one of the problems is you've got such a big spectrum that um, I'm seeing situations where a smart kid that probably ought to be in a gifted math class is put in with uh, kids with much more severe challenges in the same school. So that kid that's gifted the math's not going anywhere because a verbal thinker overgeneralizes. Uh, I think that's a problem. Okay, if you're dyslexic, okay, you can't read. You know, that's much more narrow. But it's a, you see, what happens is I'm seeing them getting trapped by the label. I'm seeing kids 16 years old, fully verbal, never gone shopping. They're not learning life skills. They're not learning things that I learned when I was seven years old. I was out shopping. Yeah. So it sounds like some of these changes to the diagnosis have been mixed a bag. Well, people just get locked into the label because the thing that's made my life really worthwhile is having an interesting career. You know, that I am what I do. And I have friends who shared interests. And I was being bullied in high school. I had a horrible time in high school. Only places I was not bullied was horseback riding. I had friends who horseback riding and showing. I had friends through the Model Rocket Club. I mean, today it's going to be the Robotics Club. But friends through shared interests, really, really important. Like when I was down in the basement, I've spent 40, I've been 25 years in heavy construction. So down in the dressing room, I'm looking up at the ceiling and I'm going, oh, they, they, the forms were planks. They weren't able to vibrate their concrete. They used smooth reinforcement rods because they hadn't invented the rough ones yet. I'm... I'm like kind of geeking out on the ceiling in the dressing room. Yeah, no, I, I, learned, I learned a few things just before we came out here on stage, just based on the construction of the uh, Paramount, yeah. Well, but those were the hundred and something year old methods. Right, for sure. They didn't have plywood back then. Didn't exist, right? No, plywood didn't yeah. exist. And some of the, I guess some of the piping and some of the other stuff also didn't exist, so that's just a measure of being a historic uh, building. Well, the other thing is they probably used enough concrete and made the columns big enough to be stouter than some of the modern buildings. Yeah, it's solid. It's yeah. solid, yeah. So, uh, so back to people who are a little older, like you say, grandfathers and maybe people younger than that that have realized or family members have realized they are on the spectrum. Because we've already talked tonight and other times in the past about the crucial 
need for early intervention when, when a kid is discovered to be on the spectrum. What happens when it's, it is somebody who's older who just, for whatever reason, that, that diagnosis was never made, and yet people now seem... What, you know, what tends to happen with an older adult is it's almost a relief because it explains why their relationships didn't work out so well. And I've got another book called Different Not Less, where 18 adults diagnosed later in life explain you know their experiences in their own words but where i'm seeing a problem i'm seeing the diagnosis of some of these smart fully verbal kids holding them back not getting jobs not learning working skills um parents do too much for them but they you, what you have to do is you have to stretch them give them some choices but you don't throw them into a sensory overload situation like a super crazy busy walmart cash register and that's where we're going to start that's what you don't do. But, but are you talking about the adults now, the older people? Who no, I'm talking about the, the adult, these adults. that I, They all had jobs. They all had jobs. And all the adults in that book had jobs, decent jobs, like yeah. doctor, veterinarian. And the reason why they all had jobs is they had paper routes at age 11 and had learned to work. Then what we got to do is make substitutes for the paper routes, like maybe um, walking the neighbor's dog. It's important for them to do a job on a schedule outside the home where somebody outside the home is a boss. Amen. That's super, super important. Maybe a church volunteer job, a volunteer job in a community center. And then as soon as they're legal age, they need to get real jobs before they graduate my school. That's right. Yeah, it's so important. And, and you, I think you've talked about that for, for many years about get them early, get them working, get them responsible, get them even low social graces and um, hosting things and being available for uh, parties, like helping serve parties just so they get Well, when I was to. seven or eight years old in our neighborhood, all the kids had to, when they were seven or eight years old, when the parents had a party, you had to put your good clothes on, greet the guests. We weren't allowed to use their first names. We knew them. We weren't allowed to use them. It was, good evening, Mr. Wood. Good evening, Mrs. Wood. And we'd shake hands with them, take their coat, be little hosts and hostesses. And that helped teach social skills. And all the kids in the 50s did that in my neighborhood. Yeah, well, this, this might be a, a good time. Uh, it's almost always a good time in, in a way to talk about your mom. Okay. Because she made all the difference. Well, in the she really pushed me. And when I was eight years old, they didn't know how to read. And so she taught me how to read but with phonics, just reading out loud from The Wizard of Oz. And an interesting book, and it was all done out loud. And I knew my ABC song, which already has half the sounds in it. So she just had me memorize the sounds and then start sounding my words out. And she'd read a page of the book and then stop at a real interesting part, let me sound out three or four words, and then gradually I sounded out more and more, and she read less and less. Yeah, I, I think I, I saw a video or a webinar or something when she was talking about that, and now she was encouraging you to read and so you were reading like exactly i think the wizard of oz and so it would get to a super exciting part and then yeah. she'd say it's your turn Temple, that's right that's exactly that, what she did that got you to keep reading because you were hooked on whatever was going to happen next in the story well and i had a book that was i wanted to read too which is really important yeah but she was pivotal in so many ways in getting you reading getting you therapy getting you talking and um, she's kind of went on to become a major noted expert in autism herself. Well, she kind of had a really good sense of just how much to push me and always giving me some choices, always having some choices. When I was a teenager, I was a 
had the opportunity to go to my aunt's ranch. And going to my aunt's ranch is where I got introduced to the cattle industry. See, again, that's exposure. And I was afraid to go. And she said, you have a choice. You can go for a week or two or all summer. But you're going to go there. <laughs> not going was not one of the choices. And when I got out there, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I did not want to come back after a week. And that was a pivotal experience, as it really, as it turns out, right? It really got oh, launched in some significant directions. Do you think, I mean, it's kind of a hard question to answer, I guess, in some ways. But given the direction you pursued in terms of all the designs we've talked about, livestock, working with cattle, etc., that if you hadn't gone away on that summer, if that just opportunity hadn't existed or you didn't, or you weren't kind of given the sort of a choice by your mom, do you think you would have ended up pursuing something similar without that opportunity? I don't think I would have been in the cattle industry if I hadn't yeah. gone to the ranch. So that brings up a really important thing, exposing kids to lots of different things. I was an Easterner. That was the first time I'd been west of the Mississippi. You know, totally different landscape. And uh, there was, people had cattle ranches all around there. And, you know, I would have been doing something else. I was very interested in optical illusions and experimental psychology because I'd been exposed to the optical illusion room in a, in a science class, in a science movie that was shown. I'm a big, what I'm a big fan of is exposing kids to lots of different things, see what they gravitate towards. Then they get good at something, then mentoring. And I had a fantastic science teacher. Because Mr. I was Carlock? A, yeah, Mr. Carlock. Yeah. Because I was a bored student who was not interested in studying until he gave me a reason to be interested in studying. Because if I studied, then I could become a scientist. So now there was a reason to study. So bad grades and things like English and history, I... I pulled my grades right up. And can you talk about, because I know he was pivotal, um, but can you talk about sort of more broadly what the importance of mentors are for kids with autism? Well, I think mentors are really important because another thing is you have to learn social skills by specific example. And one of my very first projects was on a criticized some welding, and I said it looked like a pigeon had doo-dooed on it. And <laughs> the plant engineer pulled me into his little office in the boiler room, and he said, Whitey the welder's up in the cafeteria right now, and you're going to have to apologize. And he said to me, you know, Whitey's a maintenance welder, so his welds aren't that pretty, but they hold. And I didn't go up and tell Whitey I thought the welding was wonderful, but I apologized for the rude language. In other words, right there in the moment, he quietly told me what I should do. Now, this is the same thing with the, like, with the Parcheesi game. Mother didn't scream at me. She said, ask your sister to... It'd wait for your sister to take her turn. Or if you were at the dining room table and I reached for the serving dish, she'd say, ask your sister to pass it. She'd give the instruction instead of screaming no. Yeah. And that's what Mr. Carlock and I guess there was probably other mentors. And this other plant engineer did that. And this guy, his name was Harley. And he uh, did the same thing. And it was done quietly in private. He told me what I should do. But how, for people that are here at the theater tonight who might have a young kid that might well benefit from having a mentor. How do you identify those that are going to work and be helpful the way Mr. Carlock was so instrumental to you in so many ways? Well, I think mentors sometimes get attracted to talent because one of the people I talk about in my slideshows is Michelangelo. And he was a grubby little 12-year-old, dropped out of school, didn't want to become a lawyer, didn't want to learn Latin. And uh, running around all these churches where they're doing all this great art, that's exposure. Then he made some stuff, people saw that it was good, and he was apprenticed into a studio. So you see, that would be exposure, then mentoring. 
You see, and I think that's really important. And you usually look for those in like teachers that, that your kid has at school. Is that the best place to maybe well, initially uh, find a, a mentor? Well, I worked that with the, I worked with people in construction that they were the bad boy and they were turned around by the shop teacher. So that would be mentoring. Yeah. So back to your mom just for a sec, because one thing. I, uh, I did see this webinar that as recently as a year ago she did, I think. Yeah, she's been doing some webinars. Yeah, but this was, I think, uh, hosted by a CNBC anchor or whatever. It was really fascinating. And um, she gave, let me find my notes if I can here, because she gave sort of some great recollections about how she had helped you and and when you talked about choices i want to see if i can find this because there was notes in there about sorry i know what she said yeah this is a quote that i I grabbed there are no answers there are only choices and choices can be changed and you will change them she was talking about helping and encouraging and stretching some choices because i got kicked out of um, ninth grade for throwing a book at a girl called me a retard and and i So mother had worked as a journalist, going to all the specialized schools all over New England. So she doing a uh, doing a well, it wasn't NPR back then, but it was but for the WBZ in Boston, kind of the precursor to yeah. public radio. And of course, back in the in the fifties, everything was emotional disturbance. You now it, well, it was everything. Oh yeah, everything yeah. was emotional disturbance in the fifties. And. <laughs> And she did some shows that won some awards, but she'd been to all these schools. And I, they decided to send me to special schools, so we visited three of them, and she let me pick. You see, again, choices. Another thing that she did when I was 13, she got me a little job with a seamstress, a little sewing job. And this was just something done in the neighborhood. The lady just worked out of her home, and I took apart dresses and hand hemmed them. And that was my first job, and that was just set up in the neighborhood. And this is the kind of thing that can be set up that doesn't cost anything. Because I talked to a lot of low-income families, and one girl I talked to just a few months ago, she was very proud of the fact she was 12 years old, she was a church's coffee lady. Okay, that's an example of a job just set up in the, in the neighborhood, didn't cost anything, but... You see, she's working for the pastor. That's somebody outside the family. Somebody the family knows. Yeah. But it's not mom and dad. Yeah. That's important. It's the outside job thing, right? Your mom seemed to really, as you do, of course, also emphasize the importance of how fortunate you and your family was at the time because you had some resources that not every family had. Well, we did. We did. But I... Uh, yeah, well, I came from a wealthy family, but I've also seen, um, okay, ones where it was probably the autism with no speech delay, grow up in a poor situation, and they ended up owning a shop because they were very good at building things, and they gradually just built up the business. Yeah. Now, learning how to work's really important. But I think she, her thing now, and I think yours related probably, is that you don't have to have the kind of resources that, that she had and, and in fact, she's got this thing I hadn't heard about before, the Temple Grand and Eustacia Cutler Autism Fund, which I guess is where you can go for any kind of resources if you have... Well, they, she's got a bunch of uh, webinars on that. But what I'm seeing is I travel around, and I'm traveling all around. What I'm seeing is I travel around the country. We're doing a better and better job with the little ones. 
you know, getting them into early intervention with, with the kids with special aid, we're doing a really good job, but where we're not doing a good job is getting into the workforce. And one of the big problems I see is, I'm fortunate mother didn't do this, is I see too much where the moms do everything for the kid. So here you have a kid who's never done laundry, never done shopping, might even graduate from college where they've never worked and may graduate from college at high honors and then just lose it in the workplace. You, what you, ideally what you want to do is have a gradual transition from starting around 11 years old, starting with paper route substitutes. So by the time they graduate from high school, they've had jobs. Yeah. Because we were really doing badly on this. And too many kids are ending up in the basement playing video games. When you know what they should have been doing? Putting the bolts in that door that fell out of that airplane. <laughs> well, I'm so, serious. That's what they should be doing. Yeah, so the person who forgot to put the bolts in was... Well, I actually looked up the, actually looked up the type of bolt that goes in that door. I found out I could buy them for $10 a piece. <laughs> and... And... Uh, there's a special way the cotter pin goes into a thing called a castle bolt. And it's the kind of thing that somebody has to do very carefully so the bolt can't become unscrewed. And that's a perfect job for somebody who has autism because they'll make sure that the cotter pin is installed in this castle bolt correctly. And you see, as I talk about this, I'm seeing it. You see, this is where you need a little bit of autism. Would you rather have autism? You're seeing, you're seeing a clip of the oh, bolt. Oh, I'm seeing being a bolt right now. I'm seeing it. I looked them up last night. I went shopping yeah. for them. <laughs> for those bolts. And yep. you're not forgetting any bolts, I'm sure. And But the thing is, who would you rather have um, making sure that bolts are installed correctly? Would you rather have somebody with autism installing those bolts or you want, or you want private equity doing it? Oh, and then today I had a window seat where I, you know, you have the, the control surface that comes down like this when a plane lands. Oh, I could see all the hydraulic linkages inside that thing, and there were bolts there that I could see. Wow. And I'm going, oh, I'd rather have somebody with autism assembling that mechanism. Because like you can actually see the mechanism inside there when that thing, I had a perfect window seat for seeing it. You see, now I'm seeing it right now as I talk about it, because I looked at it really intently. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to get you too hung up on the bolts, but... Uh... Well, it's very lucky it didn't happen at 35,000 feet. It would have been no, much more sure. serious. Yeah, all kidding aside, it's It was 16,000 feet. Yeah. That's Temple Grand in my conversation with her two weeks ago on stage at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. We'll hear uh, the other portion of that conversation next week's show, which also will include the uh, audience question and answer period that covered all kinds of ground uh, at the tail end of that uh, conversation with Campbell Brandon. This is Talking Animals coming up on Talking Animals shortly. I'll uh, speak with Tasha Cohen-Glenn of Achieva Credit Union about Pause for a Purpose campaign starting Friday involving collecting pet food at all of their branches in Pinellas, Hillsborough, and Pasco counties ultimately to be distributed to pet owners in need. A little more about this campaign carried out in partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay and related events coming up later in March in honor of National Puppy Day in just a moment or so here on Talking Animals on WNF. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner. 
with Mike Becchione and a piece called Vegetarian Chicken in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WNF. You know, I have a roommate and he's a vegetarian. And I don't mind that, but he hates me because I eat meat. I'm defrosting meat. I leave, I come home, my meat is gone. I know he did not eat it. It's against their rules. He's trying to probably send me like a Liam Neeson type message. Like, I have your son. What are you going to do about it? And I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take it. Not from a salad eater, which is what I call their people. So I wrap my fists in veal, punch him in the face. Yeah, it's called sending a message. All right. He starts bleeding, not blood, some kind of nectar. I don't know what vegetarians have running through their veins. I'm not a Scientologist. I don't practice witchcraft. These vegetarians are a strange group. I dated one, and she was like a hardcore vegetarian. Like, she did not even eat animal crackers. Okay, that's how deep she was in. So I catch her eating chicken. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I know you, that's against the rules. You're not supposed to eat chicken. She's like, it's organic. I'm like, I do not know what that means. She's like, the chicken I'm eating was raised young, natural, and drug-free. Chicken you eat is pumped full of drugs. I'm like, yeah, I didn't know there was a drug war going on in the poultry community. I thought it was keep your kids off drugs, let your chickens do whatever they want. That's too much responsibility if I'm responsible for myself and my chicken. She's like, the chicken you eat is pumped full of antibiotics. I'm like, that's actually good news because I don't currently have health care. So hopefully whatever antibiotics the chicken is on will help cure whatever I have. She's like, the chicken you eat is pumped full of steroids. I'm like, good, good. That means my chicken was competitive. Probably could have beat out of your bitch ass chicken. We didn't have the balls to take what he wanted. But I think it's worse to eat a drug-free chicken. And that's what I told her. I'm like, the chicken you're eating was drug-free. Trying to live a good life. That chicken was probably like a single mom. Getting her degree online in home healthcare technician. She's on the way to her book club. She got killed and you're chewing on her tits. You're a bad person. Chicken I'm eating was begging to die. He was on drugs. Probably in a biker gang, popping wheelies, going from town to town. Couldn't stop killing prostitutes. Meat eaters, we have our own problems, right? Butcher shops, I don't know how they are out here, but in Queens, it's a little aggressive. I'm walking with my nephew, he's 10. We come upon a butcher shop. It says butcher. I can read it, he can read it, we both can read it. Is there any reason for there to be a goat skinned hanging upside down? In the now I gotta answer his questions. Uncle Mike, why is there a goat skin hanging upside down on the window? I'm like, well, obviously, Nicholas, this goat was a snitch. You keep your mouth shut on the streets, you know? He's like, what about the pig next to him? I'm like, probably wrong place, wrong time. You know? That was Mike Vecchione in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Vegetarian Chicken, taken from his album, The Worst Kind of Thoughtful. Now it's time to speak with Tasha Cohen-Glenn of Achieva Credit Union about the Pause for a Purpose campaign that in partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay will collect food, pet food and distribute to pet owners in need. There's more to the story, but let's get that story by welcoming Tasha Cohen-Glenn to Talking Animals 
on WNO. Good morning, Tasha. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thanks for having us. For sure. So let's start off at the most basic level. In a sense or two, what is a Chiba Credit Union? What is a Chiba? That's a great question. A Chiba Credit Union is a financial institution that caters to its members and its community. So we're a credit union. Great. And with branches, obviously, scattered all over the... Uh... We have branches from Hillsborough County all the way down to Collier and Lee County. That's great. All right, so then let's uh, tell me a bit about uh, Pause for a Purpose. Yeah, so Pause for a Purpose. One thing about Achieva, um, which, which is a really cool thing, one of the best things once I started working here that I absolutely love, Achieva, um, we're pet lovers, right? So our employees, they're encouraged to bring their puppies to, our, to work. They bring their puppies to the branches, to the offices. We even have a few branches that have, like, Branch mascots. We have a uh, Coco and Carolwood, the cutest little poodle you'll ever see. That's <laughs> so great. We're pet lovers, yeah. So, and what we did was some years back, we created a paw park um, right at our headquarters in Dunedin, Florida. That's in Pinellas County. So our entire community actually gets to come out and enjoy time with their furry friends, and they don't have to pay anything. That's great. Now, do people get to bring their dogs to work? Yes. You nice. can bring, so we have, like we mentioned, many branches. Yeah. Um, and most, there are some branches, the branch manager, the tellers, they bring their dogs every day. And you'd be so surprised how many members that walk in who are so excited to be greeted, you know, by a little puppy kiss. Who doesn't sure. like a little lick from a puppy? <laughs> no, that's great. That's a great, that's great for the employees. And like you say, it's great for the uh, people that are coming in to do their business there and say, pleasantly sure. surprised by a little uh, dog or. Yeah. For so, sure. We're dog friendly. That's great. All right. So let's talk more specifically about the campaign that begins uh, this Friday, March 1st. What exactly yeah. happens? Yeah. So thanks for um, asking that. So because we're dog friendly, right? Great National Puppy Day, um, which actually takes place on March 23rd. But we wanted to do something special and kind of give back somehow to area pets, right? It just seemed like the best thing, especially as a natural fit for us. Um, so we started thinking about and started brainstorming on what we can do for puppies. And it's so funny. I learned that more than 30 million pets in the U.S. face hunger every year, according to a, it's a charity called Pet Smart Charities. Mm-hmm. When we see 30 million pets facing wow. hunger, I'm like, oh, man, we got to do something. And one thing about our employees as well as our members, um, they are very generous. They're very generous, very sweet, very kind. So we decided to collect um, dog food in each of our branches, north and south, um, starting March 1st. So all that means is our employees come in, they donate a bag of dog food, you know, whatever whatever they feel, toys, pets, whatever that we, you know, want to donate, we take. And the great part about it is we're going to donate all of it to Feeding Tampa Bay downstate, and then we're going to do Gulf Coast Humane Society um, down south. So, uh, so we got two, yep, two organizations that we're dealing with. But in Tampa Bay, it'll be feeding Tampa Bay. That's great. But Tasha, let me ask you this: so, uh, it sounds like the uh, Achieva uh, employees are basically the ones bringing the food. But can clients and uh, people oh. that are coming into those branches bring uh, dog food as well? Oh, absolutely. That's why we're doing it in our branches because yeah. our branches on them are so. facing. That's their branch. Yeah. So as soon as we put up a sign. They come. They go right away the next day. We've even had people leave the branch, doing their banking business, and come right back. 
you know, to drop off whatever it is that we are, you know, doing collecting school supplies. We've done, we've done so many things. Yeah. But this particular one in honor of national puppy day, we wanted to collect dog food. So just help out some of those families who have, who are actually food insecure themselves. So of course their pets are suffering as well. For sure. So is there any limitation on the pet food? Is it, is it dry? Is it wet? Is it any, any certain kind nope. of brands uh, or anything? Or is it wide open? It, it, no, it's open. And that's what I love about feeding Tampa Bay as well. They are accepting anything. Um, and, even, and I know we're doing dog food, but if someone loves cats, <laughs> we're going to take the cat food as well. So it could be dry, it could be wet, it could be big, it could be small. And what's really cool about it is we have such an awesome CEO. We're going to match up to 500 pounds of dog food. So whatever our members bring in, employees bring in, we're going to match that wow. up to 500 pounds. So we should have a really good um, showing to give over to feed in Tampa Bay. That's fantastic. So. Yeah. Then once that's all collected, it sounds like you do hand it over to Feeding Tampa Bay. But how is it distributed? And and I know it's uh, pet owners in need, but what's the criteria for selecting those families in need? Well, that would go through Feeding Tampa Bay. So what happens is on the 15th, which is the hour, we're calling it an event day, but it's our collection day. Um, We're inviting the community that's in this area all over to come enjoy a fun day with your pet, bring some dog food, and in return... They will get a picture with their puppy, a bandana, a pup cup, just some good times. We'll have raffles and fun. And Feeding Tampa Bay, they will be there to accept all the gifts. And they do that through their organization. So we literally just hand it over. Now, what I do know about the organization is they have, oh, my God, such a far reach. Um, And they serve so many families um, that are in need. And they do it so many ways. They have um, they have an empowerment center where you can come and get food. They have pantries where you can also go and get food, and they also deliver food. So there are so many ways that they actually do it. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like uh, from what you said about the uh, the, the $30 million, uh statistic yeah. that it just feels like there'd be so many people clamoring for the food that's collected in this campaign. Right. It'd just be hard to figure out, well, who gets it, and, and unfortunately maybe right. there's just not quite enough to get everybody who would need it or want right. it. So that seems... Yeah, like- I mean, you can't get to every everybody, but you want to try. Because I, I do know that Feed in Tampa Bay actually is, they're opening up a bigger building, which is super nice, um, and their on-site pantry will be there as well as down in Tampa. I know that that's happening. Um, so that should help as well, because the bigger their building, I'm sure the bigger the pantry, you know, um, yeah. that they'll be able to do it. So... It's it's a it's a lot. They have different ways of doing stuff, but I would suggest to your listeners to go on Feed in Tampa Bay's website to get specific on you know who it actually goes to and where it goes. But this is an amazing organization that we've worked with for many times. You know, for sure. So great organization. Yeah, they've been around a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that going on the website, the Feeding Tampa Bay website, would also make it clear like what the specific dates are. I assume it's not all going to be distributed on the 15th. That's probably still more right. just so, yeah, assembling it. That's just our collection day. Right. The 15th is just the day that we want to party with a purpose, right? Party right. with our community, yep. give back to their dogs, and then we'll collect the last of the food. The branches would have already, we've already picked theirs up, and then Feed in Tampa Bay is coming to get everything. That's great. Well, this mm-hmm. sounds really cool. Anything else people should know? Obviously, like you said, they should go to the uh, Feeding Tampa Bay website for some of the details about where and how to get the food. Anything else we should know, that any other website or, or uh, social, well, yeah. social so media page Chiva, you want to send people to? Yeah, so Achieve CU backslash events will host the flyer that talks all about our event. If you want to come, it is free of charge. 
Um, and on that flyer, it tells you what you actually get by coming raffles and, and just fun stuff. And we're partying with the purpose. So if they visit AchievaCU.com backslash event, they will see the day, they will see the time, and all the good stuff that comes along with it. That's great. Excellent. That's exactly what I want to know. So I think we've got the whole scoop in, uh, All right. in, in a short period of time. So thank you, Tasha, so much for joining us. And that's great. Uh, what, what a great uh, campaign. And obviously going to help a lot of folks who uh, need some help with feeding their, uh, feeding their Absolutely. pets. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. Now. Coming up on WF, it's Slice of Life, the wonderful show hosted by Randy Zimmerman and others. After that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from 1 to 3, followed by Nancy C. hosting the Wednesday Traffic Jam from 3 to 6 p.m., at which point our terrific uh, Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment is a prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be uh, offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault. And um, the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's named that animal too. Taking any guesses that come in off the air. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you'll join me next Wednesday when I'll air the second portion of my interview uh, from Austin with Temple Grand, including again the audience QA that closed out the evening covering all kinds of ground. Uh, so I invite you to join me for that conversation next Wednesday on Talking Animals on WMNF. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. And uh, Apple Podcasts are available there, too, as well as on other podcast platforms. And, of course, there's links to our social media pages and, uh, and more. So, I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi and beyond. Thanks again for all your support in the fun drive. Appreciate it. And again, Slice of Life coming up after the NPR News headlines. And um, and then Jim Bannon and to Nancy C. And on with a bunch of great music. So we'll catch you next Wednesday here at WMF at 11 a.m. Talking Animals. Thanks so much. <laughs>